Welcome, and thank you all for joining us here today. After brief opening remarks, members will, re will receive testimony from our witnesses today, and then the hearing will be open to questions. Members will be recognized in order of seniority, alternating between majority and minority members, and in order of arrival for those members who have joined us after the hearing was called to order. When you are recognized, you will be asked to unmute your microphone and will have five minutes to ask your questions or make a comment. If you are not speaking, I ask that you remain muted in order to minimize background noise. In order to get to as many questions as possible, the timer will stay consistently visible on the screen. And with that, I'll start with my opening remarks. Good morning and welcome to the second hearing of the House Committee of Agriculture Subcommittee on Nutrition, Oversight and Department Operations. Thank you to all the members in attendance today and a special thank you to our witnesses for sharing your time and expertise. This hearing entitled Examining the SNAP Benefits Cliff is the result of discussions between myself and the ranking member, Mr. Bacon, at the beginning of this Congress and subsequently after. He shared his concerns for that low-income workers may abruptly lose support as they stabilize themselves with employment and reach what we call the benefits cliff. I was pleased to hear that because I have a similar concern and we've worked together to have this hearing today. This conversation comes at a critical time. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, families across the country are still struggling to put food on the table. They are still struggling to find high-wage jobs and they are anticipating the end of emergency increases that sustain them through this extremely difficult time. During times of crisis and after, SNAP and other federal programs should adjust to allow workers to gradually ease off of benefits until they are truly able to stand on their own. These programs should allow for flexibility to ensure benefits do not end abruptly and throw workers and their families back into financial turmoil. Thankfully, we do have some built-in flexibilities in SNAP that allow states to substantially reduce the harmful effects of the benefits cliff. Broad-based categorical eligibility is a critical tool that allows recipients to save for the future, incentivizes work by allowing recipients to earn more without losing access to benefits, and substantially reduces administrative burdens for states who participate. However, not all states utilize broad-based categorical eligibility and there are always more improvements that need to be made. We must ensure that no one in this country has to make the heart-wrenching decision of accepting career advancement or putting food on the table for their families. During our last hearing, the impact of the benefits cliff was profoundly demonstrated by our witnesses who themselves were participants in the SNAP program. Both of the witnesses explained the financial constraints faced after the loss of benefits due to a moderate rise in income. Our witnesses spoke about the need to calculate every dollar earned to be sure they did not exceed the exact maximum and lose hundreds of dollars of increased emergency benefits that helped them to feed their families through this difficult time. These stories, their stories highlighted the concerning realities many families will be facing in the coming weeks. Millions of families who benefited from SNAP benefits increases will see them abruptly go away, no matter if their economic situation has improved or not. In addition, the regular benefits clip, in addition to the regular benefits clip, 
SNAP recipients will also have to adjust to an additional COVID clip as they attempt to recover from the last year. I am pleased that Mr. Bacon has expressed an interest in helping to address this problem. And together with this committee, we will work to craft solutions. To continue with this discussion today, we have today's panel of witnesses. We are fortunate to have four important points of view, including that of an economist, Dr. Hardy, two researchers, Dr. Gurrier and Mr. Randolph, and a SNAP administrator, Assistant Commissioner Brown, to help us understand the impact our decisions have uh, on Americans' future and on the Americans who are receiving SNAP in their future as they navigate the web of social programs that provide support in times of need. As my colleague, Mr. Govern has noted before, this combination of supports involves more than just SNAP and food security programs that fall under our jurisdiction. The cost of housing and childcare figure prominently into the long-term security of low-income families. Ensuring all Americans are able to attain sustainable financial stability requires an all-of-government approach. At the very least, it requires that we work diligently to strengthen these programs. I look forward to hearing more from our witnesses about the interplay between these vital supports and the impact of our shared goal to create effective, efficient federal policy that truly supports Americans in need. I do now like, I would like to welcome the distinguished ranking member, Mr. Bacon, the gentleman from Nebraska for his opening remarks. Thank you, Madam Chair. And I appreciate everybody uh, calling in today. Appreciate our panelists. I thank the Madam Chair for taking this on and we agree we have a problem. We may diverge a little bit on what the solutions are. I think it's great that we're gonna have this conversation. I'm not convinced that broad-based categorical inclusion is the right way to go. In fact, I see problems with that. I see more of a, a potential here to do, once you hit a certain point, instead of just pulling the plug, I'd bet us that we decrement the benefits down to help ease people off. But this is the discussions we do need to have, and I really appreciate uh, the chairwoman for scheduling this today. But for at least a generation, we've been talking about welfare cliffs. It's going on 30, 40 years. We've been waging this war on poverty, but with little progress uh, beyond an expansive and at times perverse web of programs and trillions in spending. Now, fortunately, if one was born in the system, the statistics show the odds are stacked against them uh, on whether or not they can navigate their way out. And it's become multi-generational. So we have to do more than just help folks. We, got, we have to do more to help folks navigate out of poverty and not just sustain them while in poverty. I think it's a, a duty for us to consider how we do that. As our witnesses will speak to, much of this cliff issues spans from the fact that we have created a program uh, for, to try to fill every void, big or small, in a person's life, whether it's healthcare, food assistance, childcare, utility assistance, housing, education, and employment, just to name a few. And instead of creating mobility, we've inadvertently crafted, crafted a massive suite of programs that when stacked, create a trap for many instead of a ramp or a cliff instead of a lift out of poverty. And this subcommittee and Madam Chair just mentioned recently hosted two uh, women who articulated the disincentives and penalties within SNAP, how their families were impacted by the very policies Congress has enacted and various administrations have regulated. Uh, both of them talked about their fear if they got full-time work or if they got too much raises, that they would immediately lose all of their benefits and their eligibility to SNAP. That's not what we want to do. Uh, we have to do something better. But I hope, uh, the, I hope this does not just become a conversation solely focused on expanding eligibility and increased 
benefits. We've seen it 50 years of evidence that shows us it just might not be working as intended. Uh, there's certainly a revenue neutral approach is to be considered here to help solve this problem. I said in the last hearing, while work waivers granted under the former and current administrations were logical response to COVID, they are now clearly keeping employable individuals idle uh, and it and reaps, in my, my view, significant negative impacts on families who need to get back to work and also small businesses who are in dire need of workers. We just see, saw today or recently 48% of businesses want to hire. So as of 31 March or 31 May, excuse me, we have more than 9 million job openings running the gamut from manufacturing to health services to retail and local government. Uh, this week we learned we now have a record high number of job openings. So it's time to utilize the resources associated with SNAP employment and training as well as state-based employment readiness services to help get folks replaced where they're qualified and engaged in these industries. We have a witness with us today, Mr. Eric Randolph, who was before this very subcommittee six years ago. And a lot has happened in the last six years including a farm bill where Republicans at least tried to soften the blow to SNAP recipients. Unfortunately, those provisions were dropped out of conference. But what has not happened is a shared effort to come together as Congress and work through this issue with both in SNAP but across the more than 80 other programs in existence. So Madam Chair, I think we both see this as an opportunity. And I'll say this again for the record, our decisions and approaches must reflect a multi-generation approach. We're long past trying and testing siloed programming. So with that, I look forward to hearing today's testimony and our future work on this. I appreciate that we've commonly identified a problem and that we're willing to try to tackle this together. Thank you and I yield back, Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Bacon. And I will just acknowledge that, yes, we do agree there's a problem and our approaches may be different. Um, but with all due respect, I, I have to believe that there's mobility in these programs. I, I'll say it again went from being a welfare recipient and a SNAP recipient and now chair this committee. So um, I guess I have to disagree that well, there is I, no I, incentive here. I, so, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, Many people have, but we had two witnesses I, um, were your guests that did say they had problems getting out. We know it's a common problem. I'm pleased to welcome such a distinguished panel of witnesses to our hearing today. Our, witness, our witnesses bring to our hearing a wide range of experiences and expertise, and I thank you all for joining us today. I look forward to hearing from you. Our first witness today is Dr. Bradley Hardy. Dr. Hardy is an associate professor, professor at the School of Public Affairs in the Department of Public Administration and Policy at American University in DC. He is also a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution, a research fellow with the Center for Household Financial Stability at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, and a research affiliate of both the University of Wisconsin Institute for Research on Poverty and the University of Kentucky Center for Poverty Research. The focus of Dr. Hardy's current work is labor economics, including economic instability and poverty policy, among other emphases. Our next witness is Dr. Al Guria, an assistant professor and director of nonprofit management and social entrepreneurship programs at the University of Baltimore in Maryland. Dr. Guria, his areas of academic research include community banking and finance, social equity, and community development with a recent examination of the minimum wage in Maryland. Prior to his work in academia, 
Dr. Guria spent 19 years as a banker and was the founder and president of the First Commerce Bank of North Las Vegas, Nevada. Our third witness today is Ms. Tiki Brown. Ms. Brown is the Assistant Commissioner of Children and Family Services for the Minnesota Department of Human Services. The scope of her responsibilities for the state of Minnesota includes services and policies that promote adoption, foster care, child protection, child support, child care, refugee services, and cash and food support. Before accepting the position as Assistant Commissioner, Ms. Brown was the Director of Economic Opportunity and Nutrition Assistance for the state, where her duties encompassed housing and shelter, food shelves, nutrition education, outreach employment and training, community action, and the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Our fourth and final witness is Mr. Eric Randolph. Mr. Randolph is the Director of Research at Georgia Center for Opportunity in Peachtree Corners, Georgia. Mr. Randolph's experiences include serving as a senior fellow with the Illinois Policy Institute and an economic lecturer for New York College of Pennsylvania. He specializes in developing economic models to assist with the creation of public policy solutions through an understanding of governmental structures. Included in his past work are analyses of income for minimum wage workers for 23 states, systemic welfare reform, and work and, and work disincentives for of welfare policies. Welcome to all of our witnesses today. Witnesses today, we will now proceed to hearing your testimony. You will each have five minutes. The timer should be visible to you on your screen, and we'll count down to zero at which point your time has expired. Again, I welcome you all today. We'll begin with Dr. Hardy, and when you're ready, you may begin your testimony. Thanks. Chairwoman Hayes, Ranking Member Bacon, and members of the Subcommittee on Nutrition, I, I thank you for the opportunity to discuss benefit cliffs in the SNAP program. Uh, as you heard, I serve as an associate professor at American University, and for 15 years I've been conducting research on economic instability and social policy, looking into programs like SNAP and the Earned Income Tax Credit and TANF. Uh, so there's several points I'd like to emphasize today, briefly. Uh, benefit cliffs our concern for program participants who are worse off on the margin, as we say, when their earnings increase. Uh, these SNAP benefit cliffs appear to affect a relatively small number of participants, however, uh, once we account for the social safety net programs and earnings are accounted for. Uh, so in practice, these benefit cliffs are relatively rare. Uh, they are problematic. Uh, and fortunately, they can be remedied. Uh, one important offset of the SNAP benefit cliff for working families are generous tax credits received via the earned income tax credit, as well as refundable child tax credits, uh, many of which are starting off this week. Uh, in the instances where family earnings rise, leading to a reduction or loss of SNAP benefits, uh, we find that the overall increased earnings and EITC payments represent a net gain for most families. Also worth noting, the structure of SNAP reduces benefits less than dollar for dollar as earnings rise, and there's a 20% earnings disregard that further promotes earnings and work. Um, other well-known safety net programs could exacerbate benefit cliffs, but they don't because re relatively few low-income families receive benefits from programs such as TANF cash assistance or housing assistance. Uh, over calendar year 2019, for every 100 poor families nationwide, 
roughly 23 received TANF cash assistance. Similarly, only one in five families who qualify for housing assistance receive it. Moving along, SNAP and work participation are in fact complementary. Most SNAP recipients are children, elderly, or disabled, uh, but most non-disabled adults on SNAP do work. Uh, the decision to work in my studies and studies across labor economics are determined by many inflexible forces, including involuntary job loss, labor market mismatches, uh, both regional, for example, and as skills change, as demands on skills change, access to reliable transportation, disability, age, childcare coverage, as well as discrimination. Most non-disabled adult SNAP recipients do work and they may receive a combination of federal and state earned income tax credit benefits. Evidence demonstrates that the EITC creates positive work incentives as well. The increased pandemic SNAP benefits, uh, they shake out to about roughly an additional $100 for a family of four. They do help to reduce food hardship, but they're inadequate to make up for lost employment. And another point, families and children receiving SNAP face difficult labor market conditions. SNAP plays a critical role in supporting work at low wages and providing a buffer against income volatility and job loss. SNAP is among the most effective economic development tools in the nation. The program reduces food hardship and insecurity, and it also improves long-run economic and health outcomes for the nation's children. It stimulates local economies and small businesses because SNAP dollars are spent, not saved. Uh, continuing along this line, uh, we can further reduce SNAP benefit cliffs uh, because many families are going to be receiving SNAP with child allowances delivered as tax credits within the American Rescue Plan which could be made permanent within the American Families Plan. Uh, these credits could reduce child poverty by as much as one half, that, that's, that's huge. Uh, this universal policy is forecasted to reduce overall black poverty by 37%, Hispanic poverty by 40%, and poverty among whites and Asians by about 24%. I mean, this is really dramatic stuff. So again, these allowances ranging from $3,000 to $3,600 are an additional offset for potential SNAP benefit cliffs. Uh, and so finally, states can address SNAP benefit cliffs uh, by raising income and asset limits uh, using broad-based categorical eligibility, as you just heard. This extends benefits to low-income families who may otherwise lose benefits. For families on the cusp of rising above 130% of the poverty line, about $2,300, broad-based categorical eligibility enables states to raise SNAP's income limit to 200% uh, of the poverty line, or about that level. Roughly 35 states have already done so. Uh, more could do it. So in closing, I uh, just want to say that SNAP provides crucial economic assistance for America's families with a really high economic return on investment. Uh, labor market factors have created more low-wage job opportunities and fewer solid middle-class jobs, leaving many families in need of a combination of SNAP and EITCs. Uh, you heard from testimony in May from folks like Odessa Davis uh, from my region of Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, a teacher who spoke uh, of how SNAP provided an important buffer during time of great need. Uh, and from my own hometown, uh, where I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, I know many uh, children who grew up with SNAP benefits uh, who have now uh, looked back uh, in an appreciative manner and they know that it contributed to their, uh, their long-term uh, outcomes. So there's long-term benefits to the nation's economy from SNAP and income support pro programs. I encourage continued support for a strong SNAP program. Uh, I do think there's clear benefits to making the refundable child tax credit payments permanent. Uh, within the ARP. These programs like SNAP are work supports. They help families and children that experience low and volatile incomes. 
So ultimately, uh, many families rising out of poverty will do so with a combination of work combined with help, uh, both from people of goodwill and from programs like SNAP, the Earned Income Tax Credit, and Child Tax Credits. So thank you, and uh, I look forward to any questions you may have. Thank you so much, Dr. Hardy, for your opening statement. We'll now move on to Dr. Guria. Uh, please unmute and begin with your opening statement when you're ready. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen of the committee. In 2018, in my capacity as professor at the university and faculty fellow with the Schaefer Center, we began to explore existing research in terms of the benefits cliff and its effects on working class population across the country. At that point, a number of other states had recently produced reports highlighting the challenges of the benefits cliff on their residents, as well as addressing some of the measures that prospective state legislatures were exploring. We commenced on a two-year research project to better understand the impact of the cliff effects and the benefits cliff phenomenon on Maryland residents using the basis of the United Way's universally accepted biennial produced ALICE report, which stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed, which highlighted some of the overall economic challenges and social economic conditions of working class families throughout the state. Within the ALICE report, we were able to identify the standard household survival budget, which establishes a minimum basic needs budgeted adjusted both geographically and with inflation. From there, we were able to create a three family static model consisting of a single individual household, a single parent with two children, and a two-parent, two-children household. <clears throat> we used an inventory of traditional state-supported social service programs, of which SNAP benefit has the largest share of participation among the state's social programs. The results of our study indicate that two-parent households are penalized by the benefits cliff, even if they receive housing assistance, which is oftentimes unlikely, and the maximum health insurance tax credit. Two-parent families with one person working full-time at the minimum wage do not have enough resources to cover their basic survival budget expenses. When both parents work minimum wage jobs, the two-adult, two-children household is only marginally better off. Although the household earns an extra income when the second adult works full-time, the family only experiences a marginal increase in net resources because as the earned income increases, the eligibility for benefits such as SNAP decreases. However, our two-parent families were not the only group negatively affected by the benefits cliff. Even with recent increases in the minimum wage from $10.10 to $11 in Maryland as of January 2020, single adults and single parents with two children could not meet their basic survival budget needs if they received housing assistance and health insurance tax credits. In analyzing our three constructed family types, we found major disincentives built into the social service structures, which prevent the pursuit of upward mobility through work for a large number of American families. The challenges presented by cliff effects and the lack of appropriate and or accommodating eligibility requirements without modifications proved to serve as a disadvantage for many working families at or near the federal poverty line. <clears throat> In Maryland, SNAP provides benefits to more than 884,000 residents or approximately 15% of the state population. At the time of our study, one in three working households in the state cannot afford basic household expenses. Minimum wage jobs, even combined with government assistance such as SNAP, are often insufficient to meet their basic needs. 
female-headed households <clears throat> are overrepresented among the state's impoverished population. The largest share of households with incomes below the federal poverty line are African-Americans at 43%, who only make up 30% of the state's population, but make up 52% of SNAP participants and are especially susceptible to the benefits cliff given their disproportionate representation. Over the last year, since the production of our study, the country and our economy have experienced an unprecedented level of social and economic challenge. The surge in unemployment insurance claims, the demand for small businesses, the disruption in our education system and the social impact on struggling families is unparalleled. However, our pre-pandemic pre data represents problematic results and the long-standing impact created by the benefits cliff phenomenon. Although the current economic data represents a very unique paradox as a result of short-term macro-governmental infusion, the predetermined expiration is my opinion that post-pandemic, the benefits cliff challenges present pre-pandemic are still relevant and will continue to remain consistent challenge among American working class families. I thank you for the opportunity to speak with you this afternoon to present our data and I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much, Mr. Boria, for that testimony. I'll now move to Ms. Brown for your testimony. When you're ready, please unmute and begin. Thank you for the opportunity to share Minnesota's experience. I first want to share with you the words of Minnesotans who have turned to SNAP. In the words of Zoe, I get up every morning and provide for my daughter. The more that you work, the more everything goes up. If we try to make the amount of money to pay the rent that you just boosted up, why is that we lose food stamps because of it? Another parent, Jojo, echoed that saying, it's like the government handicaps you, so you're stuck in that part-time job. Their words underscore some important points. First, Zoe and Jojo work. That makes them very typical working age SNAP recipients. Almost 75% of the non-disabled working age adults turning to SNAP in Minnesota are employed or just recently lost a job. The majority of workers who rely on SNAP to supplement low wages or to get them through a spell of unemployment are concentrated in four industries, retail, hotel and restaurants, healthcare and social services, and temporary agencies. Workers in these occupations are also the least likely to receive unemployment benefits. In fact, even though low wage workers are two and a half times more likely to lose a job, they're only half as likely as higher paid workers to receive unemployment compensation. The most important point that Jojo and Zoe make, work does not provide enough money to meet needs as basic as having enough food to feed their families. Three important changes could make SNAP more effective at increasing the number of people who sustain work and at making it more possible for those workers to realize economic stability. The power of these three changes is in their combination, not as a menu. Number one, increase the earned income disregard. Number two, raise the gross income limit. And number three, increase SNAP benefits. I'm going to walk you through a PowerPoint slide to illustrate the impact of these combined policies. And hopefully that should pop right up. All right, this sample is for a family of three. In the graph, the SNAP household benefit amount is in the vertical axis on the left, and the, household SNAP, the household's monthly earnings are in the horizontal axis on the bottom. Next, 
The first line shows what happens in Minnesota as earnings increase under the current SNAP household benefit amount without any COVID-19 enhancements and includes Minnesota's current 20% earnings disregard and our 165 gross income test. Next, the second line shows the 15% increase to SNAP benefits. Next, please. With the 165% gross income test that Minnesota has adopted under broad-based categorical eligibility and SNAP's 20% earned income disregard. The 15% increase to benefits has pushed the cliff out further, but the 20% earned income disregard has still allowed a significant reduction in SNAP benefits while the family is still below the poverty line. Next, the third line shows how the cliff would move further out if SNAP no longer used the 15% increase, that's a COVID benefit, but use the same earned income disregard that's applied in Minnesota's TANF program. Minnesota took this disregard formula from the Federal Supplemental Security Income Program. That sort of uniformity across federal programs would make sense. It pushes the cliff out further, but it's still a sharp cliff. Next, the fourth line shows the Social Security income disregard, but also applies the 200% gross income limit, the maximum allowed under broad-based categorical eligibility. Now the cliff starts to soften to a slope. Next. The fifth line shows what it would mean to continue with the SNAP 15% increase coupled with the social security income disregard. Without the higher gross income limit, the cliff is still steep. Next, this final line shows a full combination of the 15% increase in SNAP benefits, the higher earned income disregard, and the 200% gross income limit. We see the greatest graduation in the cliff with this combination. End PowerPoint, please. There is one other critically important cliff to worry about. That is what happens to the SNAP benefits of someone who arrives to us in severe financial crisis, relying not only on SNAP, but also on cash assistance. SNAP helps us buy groceries. SNAP cash assistance pays the rent. Both are necessary to get out of a crisis, but SNAP counts every dollar of cash assistance against the food benefits. SNAP should disregard cash assistance payments until a household is above the poverty line. Broad-based categorical eligibility has allowed states to demonstrate improved SNAP policies, such as implementing the higher gross income limits and waiving the asset limits. The success of these efforts should be coupled with federally initiated improvements, including increased benefits, a more effective earned income disregard, and not offsetting benefits against below poverty level cash benefits. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your testimony, Ms. Brown. And I would now like to welcome our fourth and final witness, Mr. Randolph. Thank you for being here. Welcome to the committee. When you are ready, you can unmute and begin your opening statement. Hi, Madam Chair, may I share my screen at this time for a PowerPoint? I don't, committee, can you help with, can we stop the clock just no, I, until he figures I out what he's going to do? Okay, yeah. thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair and Ranking Member Bacon um, for your comments. I really like your comments to begin. Uh, and also I'd like to thank the other witnesses. I was listening to what you were saying and all the committee members for this opportunity to present testimony today. My name is Eric Randolph and I'm the Director of Research for the Georgia Center for Opportunity, GCO for short. We are a nonpartisan nonprofit organization 
that works to remove barriers to ensure that every person, no matter their race, past mistakes or circumstances of their birth, have access to quality ed education, fulfilling work and a healthy family life. Our work in the local communities, um, sorry, I gotta keep up my slides. <laughs> Our work in the local communities and with other nonprofit organizations who serve underserved communities teach us how to define our work and our research. One such area where we have heard from clients, other nonprofits and employers is that of the unintended consequences of safety net services. These include stories about honest, hardworking individuals giving up higher pay in fear of losing benefits known, of course, as the benefit cliff. We, like many of you in the subcommittee, understand the need and value of safety net services. And of course, SNAP is among the most important ones, if not the most important one. Many people whom we work with each day rely on these services to meet their nutritional needs and to help make ends meet. We would like you, we would like to make sure that such services help as intended and do not hinder a person's effort to improve their situation so they can have better opportunities to thrive and flourish. There we go. Sorry. All right, that is why we created and are continuously improving our benefits model. Our benefits model is not a statistical model. It is a computational model that converts program rules into algorithms, tells us how much a family, based on its characteristics, can receive in benefits from 14 major means-tested assistance programs. These 14 programs represent 80% of all federal funding for means which anyone can access at benefitscliffs.org. Here on this slide is one scenario that shows a SNAP benefit cliff as well as a subsidized childcare cliff. In this specific scenario, a single mom with two children would need an, at least an additional 9.6% pay raise to overcome this SNAP benefit cliff. Safety net programs interact in unanticipated ways, which makes it complicated. The more safety net programs we feed into the model, the more cliffs emerge over a range of earnings and some of the cliffs can be quite severe. I had mentioned we've, we've been receiving comments from clients, other nonprofits and employers about benefit cliffs. Here's a story we feature on our website. It's of a single mom unable to accept a pay raise simply because it means she wouldn't be able to maintain housing support for her and her young son. We believe that when the design of a program violates the intent of the program itself, it needs to be fixed. And we believe that when it interferes with the ability of persons to get ahead, it is dehumanizing. This slide gives another example. It shows the current circumstances with the SNAP program where a family of four faces a monthly loss of $782. This cliff is at least 27.5% of the family's earnings. I have outlined in my written testimony a number of observations and recommendations for you to consider. I will now highlight two observations and two recommendations. One, I have outlined, um, one, obviously, 
Benefits must always taper off consistently and gradually as income rises. Two, not so obviously, starting benefit values when income is zero that are too high make it much more difficult to find solutions. Three, you may want to consider reinforcing existing US code on demonstration projects to address the SNAP benefit cliff. Currently, GCO is collaborating with nonprofits in Texas and Louisiana on solutions where we could use more federal flexibility, such as blending human services with workforce services. Four, consider also to reinvigorate SNAP work requirements to help people improve their circumstances where they will no longer require assistance. To wrap up my comments, I like to say that solving benefit cliffs will not be easy. And I commend you for undertaking this topic today. We believe our research and modeling can help you understand benefit cliffs and marriage penalties better, and importantly, help you find solutions to these problems. I look forward to answering any questions you may have. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Uh, before we move on, I just want to make sure that Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson are not here and do not want to be recognized at this time. I don't see them. So at this time, members will be recognized for questions in order of seniority, alternating between majority and minority members. You will be recognized for five minutes each in order to allow us to get as many questions as possible. Please keep your microphones muted until you are recognized in order to minimize background noises. At this time, I will recognize the gentleman from Massachusetts, Mr. McGovern, for your questions. Well, thank you, uh, Chair Hayes, for calling today, today's hearing. I want to thank the witnesses. Um, as some of you know, uh, at the House Rules Committee, we have launched a series of hearings and roundtables focused on hunger, uh, looking across federal departments and programs at ways safety net programs work together uh, to address hunger. And as part of that effort, I've spent a, a lot of time during these last several months talking to people living in poverty, people with lived experiences, talking to people who rely on modest SNAP benefits to put food on the table uh, for their families. And what I've learned um, is that people's lives are very complicated. Uh, and do you know what I have not heard once, I've not had a single person who has told me that they would rather rely on SNAP and other government assistance programs instead of a good paying job. Uh, in fact, um, I think it's important to remind everybody that, uh, that we do know that the majority of people who are able to work, who are on SNAP right now, actually do work. Uh, you know, we've heard a, a lot of talk about, we've heard some talk about a culture of dependency uh, here today. Uh, as a result, uh, resulting from SNAP, but the fact of the matter is it's simply not true. The average person is on SNAP less than a year, and three quarters of recipients uh, work within a year uh, of receiving a SNAP benefit. I, th I think we can all agree that a good paying job is one of the surest ways out of poverty, but, but let's be clear here. Uh, there isn't a shortage of Americans looking for work. There's a shortage of Americans willing to work for low wages with no benefits, no health care, no child care, and no protections, and dur especially during a pandemic. Uh, and for decades, America's working families have been getting clocked by stagnant wages, disappearing benefits, and shrinking savings. 
Um, you know, so if, if some workers are demanding jobs that treat them with dignity and respect, jobs that actually allow them to get off of government benefits for good, all I can say is, uh, you know, it's about damn time. In fact, what we, we've heard from the witnesses today is that SNAP supports work. Broad-based categorical eligibility helps to mitigate the SNAP, SNAP cliff. And yes, we've heard that while SNAP is well-designed, there can be further improvements made, like increasing benefit levels and increasing income limits to make the program even more effective. So I think one of the challenges we have is we need to look at this issue holistically. And that's why I'm calling for a White House conference on food, nutrition, hunger, and health, because ending hunger will be a whole of government approach or require a whole of government approach. And a White House conference will help us look beyond the jurisdiction of this committee and really help us explore the interplay between federal programs that Dr. Hardy uh, spoke about. So I'm hopeful that such a conference will be able to help Congress out of this mind, get out of this mindset where struggling, um, uh, you know, people uh, are and their struggles are disparaged and, and diminished. Uh, people with lived experiences of hunger need to have a seat at the table in developing a plan to end hunger once and for all. So Dr. Dr. Hardy, let me begin with you. I, thanks for making the strong connection between SNAP and work. Could you please elaborate on your findings that support the complementary nature of SNAP and work? Sure. So, you know, two points. First of all, we do have broader structural labor market issues, where, as you said, our economy has unfortunately produced a, a high share of very low paying jobs over the past several decades. So it's become increasingly polarized, fewer in the middle. And so I think that many of these households and families rightly want to move up the economic ladder. There are promising programs. Work Advance is one example uh, that can try to connect uh, anchor employers uh, you know, with workers so that they can move up that economic ladder. Uh, but put simply, in the labor economics literature, when we think about the whole host of factors that contribute uh, to work or labor supply or disincentivizing, uh, we just simply don't find uh, that food assistance programs are, are, are a major contributor. Um, it's, it's tiny, if not zero. So, uh, you know, there's other things to look at if we're thinking about this as a hypothetical patient. Uh, SNAP does its job. Um, it provides economic assistance. And again, uh, Representative McGovern, um, there are these long-term benefits for children uh, that show up right. in, in increased economic productivity. Yeah. And let me just say, you know, SNAP is not some generous benefit. The average benefit right. is about $1.40 per person per meal. It's been increased uh, as a result of the American Rescue Plan. But Ms. Brown, can you please elaborate on your recommendation that we increase SNAP benefits and how would a benefit increase plus an increase in the earned income uh, uh, disregard, uh, disregard and an and increase in gross income limit help people achieve greater financial stability? Thank you. Yes, as was stated previously, the SNAP benefit is a supplemental benefit. So it isn't intended to cover the full month's worth of food, and that does cause families uh, additional stress and, and strain. Um, and if we increase, as I mentioned in my recommendations, what we're really focusing in are people who are working, people that are on that, that verge, and it gives them just an increased stability and um, additional support so that they can make it long term. Yeah, and I think, I, I know my time is up, but I just want to thank you. I, I think it's important that we dispel this narrative, this false narrative out there that somehow people who are on this benefit, you know, do not want to work. Um, the bottom line is the majority who are able to work are actually working, uh, but wages are so low and benefits are non-existent that they have no choice. So I appreciate your testimony. I yield back. 
Thank you, uh, Mr. McGovern. Uh, Ranking Member Bacon, I want to apologize. I'm so sorry. When I decided I would go at, at the end, I think I just, in my head, put you at the end as well. So if you'd like to be recognized for your questions right now, um, I'll recognize, <laughs> I'm sorry, the gentleman. Sorry, Madam Chair. I apologize. That's all right. I have a very thick skin. I don't worry about those things. So I appreciate, I appreciate it. No problem. Um, I'll acknowledge with what Mr. McGovern is saying. We know people do want to work, but yet every one of our witnesses here, uh, three or three in particular, have talked about that there is a real negative impact of the cliff effect. It's disincentivized some. Of we, and I think we heard from Mr. Randolph, a dollar, one dollar earned more costs seven hundred dollars of benefits. That's a real uh, factor there that real people have to have to deal with. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Hardy, uh, thank you for. Uh, your comments too, and, and, I, and I agree with you, Stamps a Vital Program. Do you see any value at all with sloping the benefits down as other panels here said, versus uh, you know a direct cutoff? You talked a lot about the EITC, but are there benefits to sloping uh, the benefits down? Well, it's a great question, uh, Representative. And you know, one of the things I'd point out is that as we discuss this, you know, certainly there is what we call a benefit reduction rate. Um, right now, statutorily, that's around 30%. And so, you know, you, you lose 30 cents for every dollar earned. Uh, but in fact, that's an improvement. So on the arithmetic, uh, just looking at SNAP alone, uh, that's kind of what we want. Now, there's other alternatives you have. You can extend the program out uh, that would raise costs. Uh, I am, in fact, in favor of the sorts of, uh, you, know, you know, interventions that Commissioner Brown recommends. So, you know, I think that, you know, my view is that we already do have uh, this sort of downward sloped hill. I think it's more of a hill, less than a cliff. Um, and my view is that uh, we're trying to fight structural labor market conditions. And so we see this adjustment occurring right now, both in Nebraska, North Carolina, where I grew up, Maryland, where I currently am. And so the idea is that we do see this feature of the program uh, that the benefits do slope downward. Um, and if you want to extend those benefits out, I think that's a promising direction. Okay, well, thank you. Because I, uh, so I know you folks on the EITC, but I appreciate just getting your added thoughts there. Dr. Greer, thank you for seeing what's, what you're seeing in Maryland. I think it sort of validates the concern that we have. So I appreciate your comments. And Ms. Brown, also uh, appreciate showing what you're seeing also in Minnesota. And I think you've said it really well about needing a slope and not a cliff. Uh, Mr. Randolph, uh, did I get that right? One dollar added cost, was it seven, over $700 in benefits? Did I catch that right in your, in your slide? For a family of four, that is correct. Wanted to ask you too, in the last farm bill, we had, we extended uh, transitional benefits. We also uh, had some increases to the earned uh, income tax deduction. They were both stripped out at conference. Do you think that these measures would have helped with the uh, cliff effect? Eric or Mr. Randolph, excuse me. So uh, would you tell me what those measures were again? Yeah, we, we extended transitional benefits mm -hmm. and we also increased some of the earned income uh, tax deduction, but they were stripped out of conference. I was just curious if you thought those would, could have been value added to this discussion. Right, traditional um, benefits or the transitional benefits is, is a common thing we've had in, in programs for quite a while. And uh, certainly it is a tool that that the states can use to help. So, so I would have to agree that is uh, for the, now you're referring to the earned 
um, deduction, the, the right. income disregard. And, and that most likely would. Now, I would actually personally like to test it because there's some other complicating uh, factors in there. So I would like to like use our modeling and, and play with it and say, let's increase it from 20% to let's say 40% and see what it all overall does. I think it's promising. It sounds like a good idea, but I haven't really uh, specifically tested it. Here's, here's another one for you, Mr. Randolph. Do you think it's logical to eliminate asset tests from stamp eligibility determinations? Why not incentivize earnings through a raised limit? Right. Yeah. So I like to actually call them excess resource tests because that's actually what a number of the states call them. And when I worked at Pennsylvania's Department of uh, Public Welfare, for example, that's what we call them an excess resource test because I think it kind of emphasizes, it, it's not that you're trying to penalize people for having assets. It is that they're trying to find you have excess assets beyond, you know, what, you know, beyond what is standard that, that you might be trying to hide so that you're not paying your, uh, your thing. Now, I, I believe that uh, you're working on this, if I, miss, if I understand it, that, that you would like to update the asset test because it hasn't been updated in a long time. But th there is a fundamental issue uh, where if you get rid of the asset test or the excess resource test, you still have to deal with the situation where people have a lot of resources. And I know that there's been, for example, uh, there's been some thing, uh, some situations in the media highlighted where, where you have one individual win a very large lottery winning and they're still on food stamps, right? So that's happened. But it actually occurs a lot more because when I was at the Department of Public Welfare, uh, every month we would, we would get the winners for the lottery and we would run against the rolls of the, of the SNAP program. And, and you know sometimes these winners might only get 100,000, they might get tens of thousands, but we would always find that there would be individuals that were still receiving their food stamps. So, there was a, so it was necessary for, for our department to kind of keep up with that. And we participated in a number of data exchanges to do that. So, so I mean, yes, the subcommittee could decide to get rid of the asset test, but I, I'm thinking you need to replace it with something because you have to deal, not everybody out there lives just on income. Now we're talking about a small minority of people, but I think you still have to be able to address that minority. Thank you, Mr. Randolph. I have to yield back uh, my time or our time is short, but I appreciate your inputs and all the panelists' inputs. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that, uh, Ranking Member Bacon. At this time, I will recognize uh, the gentleman from the Mariana Islands, Mr. Sablon. Uh, I don't know if you have a question or if you are going to yield as you um, said before. If you do, I'll take the time. All right, uh, I yield to the chair of my time. Uh, although this is a very good hearing. Uh, Madam Chair, I yield my time to you. Thank you, Mr. Sablon. And again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm not sure what time of the night it is in the Mariana Islands, but the fact that you are so um, invested in this work really speaks volumes. So thank you for joining us. Um, and thank you to all of the witnesses for your testimony. My question today, um, many low-income families participating in SNAP are struggling to make ends meet and are unable to save for the future. According to the Urban Institute, roughly half, only roughly half of SNAP households have a bank account at all. And for those that do, the average amount held in their bank accounts is about $150. My question is for, Mr. Hard, for Drs. Hardy and Goria. 
Can each of you speak more about how broad-based categorical eligibility eases the benefits cliffs faced by SNAP recipients if they are able to secure more work hours or higher wages? Specifically, how does raising the gross income limits and increasing or eliminating the asset test allow recipients to receive to achieve greater financial stability? We can start with Ms. Dr. Hardy and then go to Dr. Goria. Yes, and, and, and I'll try to, to be relatively brief so uh, Dr. Goria can respond as well. You know, uh, what I would simply say is that these sorts of policy interventions uh, give these SNAP families uh, more in the way of space in order to move e up the economic ladder. These households are more likely to experience both low incomes and very volatile incomes. Uh, so they operate in a part of the labor market uh, where there's a lot of job instability. And so when you think about broad-based categorical eligibility and expanding uh, the ability to have additional assets, you're talking about ways to give these households additional buffers. Those are buffers that can help them in their day-to-day -day expenses. Uh, these are buffers that help uh, families provide the resources for their children uh, to learn and, and ultimately move out of poverty. And, and importantly, these are the sorts of findings that we have within the economics literature uh, that programs like SNAP uh, have been causally linked to improving long-term economic outcomes, precisely what we want in public policy interventions. And so this, as you suggest, Representative Hayes would be a boost. Yeah, and, and along those same lines, when we talk about broad-based categorical eligibility, uh, Dr. Hardy talked about the benefits of the the, the recipient and the ability to pursue greater employment opportunities, but it also provides greater flexibility for the states. We've seen the ability to provide greater limits when the previous illustrations of the curves, the, the higher limits allow for smoother cliffs, allowing recipients to uh, increase their benefits over a longer period of time that allows them to make greater transitions and pursue more work opportunities that might not otherwise be there. Uh, the broad-based categorical allows for some degree of savings to be accumulated that also creates a stability in our research when we talk about the ability to meet the sustainable or survival limit. That's, that's a recipient that has no ability to deal with any un- expected uh, expenses that occur. So that broad-based categorical limit allows for some degree of accumulation of savings that allows an individual to transition some of those unexpected expenses as they pursue work opportunities in the field. Thank you. Thank you both for that. And I'll just add um, to, to that. I, I like that uh, Dr. Hardy talked about long-term economic outcomes because for many families that are making this decision, their decision is not based solely on, I don't wanna work more hours because my benefits will be cut. It is on the long-term economic stability of their family and the fact that um, the analysis of having two or three more hours at work means now you don't have money to buy groceries for your children. So it's not as simple as, I don't wanna work so that I don't disrupt my benefits. So there is, this is about the long-term economic stability of families. Mr. Sablon, thank you again for yielding your time. And with that, I'll end and move on to our next witness on the minority side. Um, is Mr. Crawford with us? Yes, ma'am. Yes, yes, I now recognize Mr. Crawford. Thank you. Please unmute and begin your questions. 
Thank you, Madam Chair. I appreciate that. And to our panelists, thank you for being here. I think my colleagues and I believe there is an awful lot more we can do for those who are trapped in our social safety net programs, but we're simply limited by the level of discourse in Washington, which has essentially stymied any true reform on this and many other important issues of concern to Americans. Well, let's be honest about it. Higher enrollment equates to higher program costs for both federal and state governments. And no one should equate that with helping people. Why not preserve the program for those who need it and use those savings to invest in job training, child care, and other necessary supports and services? For any witness that wants to comment on this, why do we see so many differences in program administration costs across states? Can we assume that states are truly looking at their populations and providing solutions that meet their needs? Or do we have any examples of where this may or, or may not be true? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at answering that question. So thank you for that question. That's actually a difficult question to answer, I believe. Um, I think what, you know, as far as the issue or the level of the amount of funding, uh, we, we leave that to the members of Congress. I don't know if we want to get involved as an organization to answer that. However, what we're really focused on is smoothing out the cliffs. And, and as um, the representative from Massachusetts have uh, noted before, uh, when we talk about an individual running into a benefits cliff, they're already working. And, and, and those individuals, you know, they, they have a job, but, but we, we know that this happens because, I mean, not only do we have the anecdotal stories, but we have the computational analysis that show that, the exist to, that, that these cliffs do exist uh, on the one hand. But on the other hand, um, we, we do know uh, as a minority uh, that there are some individuals, such as the ABOD population, who, who, who could be working. So, I mean, it's, 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 there's, we're talking about millions of people on this program, and it's really difficult to make any one single statement that represents all of them. But we do know that there are individuals that could actually work that are not working. So that's kind of why we have a recommendation to reinforce the work requirements, a recommendation to, 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 to focus on the, uh, on the training, one of the things that we do at GCO is, is it's not just trying to get people a job the first time, but we also would try to help for them to move up the career ladder. So, so you know, if someone has a job to help them kind of advance. So I think that kind of sets kind of a perspective. Uh, of course, if you put more people in roles, it's gonna cost more money, but, but uh, I'm a little bit of an optimist here. I think that if we solve both the, the, the problems of the benefits cliff, and then we solve the problem of the marriage penalty in combination that we would actually see the roles naturally come down. So I think maybe in the long run, it would save us money, but I'm optimistic, it's a, it's a speculation. Anybody else wanna weigh in on that? Uh, oh. Madam Chair, I appreciate the time. If somebody wants to comment, otherwise I'll yield. I can weigh in very briefly here. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to make the point of, um, as was mentioned, right, the the um, the SNAP 
program exists to expand and contract. And so that flexibility is critically important so that when individual states or labor markets experience difficulties, the program is vital so that it's there for people during that, during that time. And as was stated before as well, uh, people are on the program for a short period of time. And so we do want to preserve that ability for people to come to the program when they need it and then move off when they can be self-sufficient. Thank you very much. Thank you, Madam Chair, I yield back. Thank you, thank you for your questions. I now recognize, it looks like the gentlewoman from North Carolina has returned. We'll recognize Ms. Adams for your questioning. If you wanna unmute and begin. Thank you, Madam Chair, uh, Ranking Member Bacon. Thank you both for hosting the hearing today and to our witnesses, thank you for your testimony. Uh, right now, more than 42 million Americans are struggling with food insecurity, including in including an estimated 13 million children, over 18 million, Amer million uh, Americans are receiving unemployment benefits and up to 40 million cannot afford rent and, and fear eviction. In the richest nation in the world, this is unacceptable. As the temporary 15% SNAP increase and emergency uh, allotments come to an end, Congress must come up with a solution to ease the COVID-19 relief clip. The abrupt, abrupt reduction of loss of benefits can be very disruptive for uh, low-income Americans, which is why I introduced the closing the meal gap to permanently increase benefits by 30% and eliminate certain eligibility limits. Dr. Hardy, uh, we're approaching September 30th, which will mark the end of the SNAP emergency allotments uh, passed in the Families First Coronavirus Act in March. So based on your work, looking at the government's response to the pandemic via the federal safety net, Will the end of these additional benefits create a crisis for families, or will there be other programs that are able to ease the burden as, as, as they go back to work and as kids go back to school? Well, I appreciate the, the question. I, I admit that this is absolutely complex, and you know, economists and others are going to be monitoring this over the summer and the fall. Now, you do have uh, child allowances coming through the ARP that are going to be quite helpful. Uh, for many families with children, 3,600 for younger kids, 3,000 otherwise. Uh, but that's not a permanent solution. Uh, it will help some of these issues of benefit cliffs. Uh, I would just say, Representative Adams, that you know we've known for a while now in research uh, that low-wage workers, families uh, working in the low-wage labor market have had increased expenses, transportation expenses, for example, increased housing expenses. And so I do believe that proposals like those you've put forth are, are going to be really viable and important to think about whether it's time uh, to consider um, a boost in those SNAP benefits. Uh, they do respond to the business cycle, as Commissioner Brown noted. Um, and we do see folks who absolutely, if they have the job, if they're making uh, sufficiently high earnings, they don't need the benefits in the first place. So I do think you have a situation where multiple things can be true at once. Uh, the programs can be helpful. People could prefer to not need them. And ultimately, some might may move off. Uh, but I absolutely believe that in a time of a global pandemic, we were aggressive and that was the right move. But we still need to make sure that families aren't left behind. Thank you very much. Uh, Ms. Brown, uh, can you elaborate on your recommendations that Congress increase the earned income uh, disregard uh, uh, raise the gross income and increase benefits. Certainly, thank you, Representative. 
Our proposal is really looking to provide some stability to families and provide some opportunity for um, some amount of savings to occur so that when unexpected expenses do occur with families which, which and, and low-wage workers, which we know they do, um, that this would provide them some relief and some support. And so we know from um, speaking to our families and to our individuals and to our low-wage workers that transportation, for example, is is always um, a strain and you must maintain transportation options so that you can um, uh, maintain that, that job. And so having, for example, a little bit of savings in which you could um, pay for that car repair um, are critically important. And so this combination is a really powerful um, solution, we think, to really um, help provide some stability. Thank you very much. Dr. Gloria, I was interested to see that your research determines the benefit clip both before and after the pandemic will cause problems for families. So can you explain that a little bit more? And are you saying that none of these will have a lasting effect on a family's well-being? No, what, what we're saying is that uh, we, we expect that as we, as we move post-pandemic, that we'll, that we'll see comparable trends in terms of the benefits clip that we saw prior to the pandemic era. Um, I mean, I, I think we saw just just more recently, you know, trends in the 10 year uh, treasury dipping, uh, given a speculation that we're kind of moving into a different economic forecast. But all of our research yeah. indicates that the same cliff uh, results that we we saw pre pandemic will still be existing once we move through this phase. Right. Thank you very much, Madam Chair. I yield back. Uh, thank you very much uh, uh, for your response. Thank you, Representative Adams. I now would like to rec recognize the gentleman from Tennessee, Mr. Desjardins, if you are, yes, I see you. I am. Thank you, Madam Chair. And your questions. Yeah, thank you, Madam Chair, Ranking Member Bacon. Appreciate the witnesses being here. I have a few questions for you, Mr. Randolph. Uh, in your testimony, you discussed the decline in the labor participation rate among prime working age individuals. This certainly is consistent with what I'm hearing from employers in my district who are having increasingly difficult time staffing their businesses. Could you discuss from your perspective the importance of SNAP work requirements and education and training components? Absolutely, thank you for the question. Um, this is an area where, uh, you know, labor force partici uh, participation rates, and we're talking primarily uh, individuals who are the, what we call the prime working age, uh, especially among males. Where, where we see over the decades a, a, a fairly significant decline in the participation. And so it's been quite a challenge, quite honestly, uh, of trying to determine what all the causes are. Uh, the, the Council of Economic Advisors to the Obama administration, for example, they have produced a, a major paper on this and, and there was quite a number of discussion. We have both uh, think tanks on the left and the right that that have kind of focused on this. We at GCO have actually done some work in this area because, of course, it's the clientele that we serve. And uh, and one of the things that 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 these studies have pointed out is, you know, the, the role of safety net programs. And and so the you know, knowing that we do have certain kind of cliffs and that there may be certain uh, things that we actually have uh, with the food stamp program, I don't think we can eliminate that, that it's a possibility 
that that the food stamp program, you know, we could at least let me say it this way, we could at least use it as a tool to try to help these individuals. And in fact, I believe that if we look at the experience of Maine, the state of Maine and the, and the experience of the state of Kansas, uh, they had actually uh, they had actually applied the ABOD rules after the Great Recession. They were the first two states to do it. And, and there is measurable success. They, they actually kind of measured the number of individuals that they got to be employed that were you know, the ABOD population. Right. And we tried, as you probably remember, to do this in the last farm bill. And unfortunately, I think there was a pretty good plan there that got uh, stripped out. So maybe we can revisit that at some point. Uh, you also bring up pandemic SNAP waivers, which allow states to give recipients the maximum allotment for SNAP. In your opinion, how do these waivers lead to SNAP benefit cliffs? Well, uh, what the waiver allows is that it allows the states to give the maximum benefit uh, to anyone who qualifies for food stamps. And so, so that means that whoever loses it, loses that maximum benefit amount. And that's why the one slide showed that for a family of four, uh, the monthly benefit is $782. So that's the yeah. amount that they would lose. And um, I believe all states actually uh, uh, sought waivers for this program. So, so okay. it's pretty much across the board. Okay. And your testimony also included a series of recommendations specific to SNAP related to the penalties associated with employment. Uh, thank you more broadly. What role do uh, local and state governments play in moving families towards economic mobility? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I would like to focus maybe just on the state. Uh, okay. we, we actually have... Um, we have uh, some some work that we've produced. We had three a uh, three series report that talks about how states can actually better uh, safety net programs in general. Um, and 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 one of the components is we have an uh, we recommend uh, a integrated eligibility system. Uh, Georgia has the Georgia Gateway, so we're kind of halfway there. We're moving in that direction. A lot of other states are moving in that direction. Um, and we could use more flexibility, quite frankly, from the federal government to help us succeed. Okay, well, certainly I appreciate your time and I appreciate all the witnesses for being here today. Uh, hopefully we can work on ending these cliffs because I do think that that would be very beneficial and I agree with our ranking member and, and uh, uh, Madam Chair, you as well. So uh, I will yield back the balance of my time. Thank you, Mr. Desjardins, for your questionings. I now recognize the gentlewoman from New Hampshire, uh, Ms. Custer, if you wanna unmute and begin your questioning. Great, thank you very much, Madam Chair. As we begin to slowly emerge from the depths of the pandemic, we've come away with a new appreciation for the vital role that SNAP plays in our country. Millions who suddenly lost their jobs or had their hours cut as our economy shut down had to rely on SNAP for the modest benefit it provides to help put food on the table for their families. In 2019, the average SNAP benefit for recipients in my state of New Hampshire was about $1.22 per meal. And even with the 15% maximum increase allotted by the economic rescue package, this is still anything but luxurious. 
As our economy reopens and businesses are able to start hiring again, it's more important than ever to help families on SNAP avoid the so-called benefit cliff as their wages and hours rise. Abruptly losing SNAP benefits when your income reaches 130% of the poverty line can create a very rough transition for families at a critical moment when they're trying to steady their finances. Thankfully, New Hampshire and the vast majority of states have instituted broad-based categorical eligibility, or BBCE, a policy that allows families just getting by to continue receiving SNAP benefits at a gradually reduced rate as their incomes rise and stabilize. This helps folks prevent folks from falling off the benefit cliff at a critical tipping point. And this policy also streamlines the application process for those who qualify for help. In my mind, anything that helps cut through costly red tape is a clear win. On that note, Ms. Brown, you mentioned in your testimony that Minnesota waived its SNAP asset test, and this relieved some administrative burdens that weren't relevant for the vast majority of SNAP participants. Do you have a sense of how much time that decision saves your department? And you, do you see other opportunities to streamline administrative processes that will also benefit, also help those who are facing the benefit cliff? Thank you. Indeed, in 2010, Minnesota was able to implement broad-based categorical eligibility. And our department's analysis in 2011 determined that less than 1% of the households applying for SNAP or already receiving SNAP were affected by eliminating the asset test. So uh, that saved our, our county and tribal eligibility workers 7 to 10% of their time. It, it, it is an administrative burden that is unnecessary in our mind. I'd also like to uh, point out that SNAP law does require um, people to report lottery and gambling income as well. And so broad-based categorical eligibility has been a great flexibility for states to utilize and, uh, stre and streamline the program and um, make the program work for their state and impact, um, help impact our, our families. We have approximately 50% of our population, our children. And again, when we reviewed our data, if we did not have broad-based categorical eligibility, nearly 35,000 Minnesotans would not receive SNAP benefits. The majority of them would be children. Thank you. Thank you very much for the work that you do. I also want to ask Dr. Gourier about your research, which highlighted the benefit cliff that faces families in Maryland, in which both parents work jobs at or near the minimum wage. Maryland's minimum wage is over $11 per hour. How would those difficulties be exacerbated in states with an even lower minimum wage wage, like here in New Hampshire, $7.25. Yeah, we, we would imagine that the, the benefits cliff would even be sharper in those states. I will say that our data um, does present cost of living adjustments for the state of Maryland, but we initially tested it at $10.10. Uh, as I said, in January 2020, that number moved from $10.10 to $11 and our families in Maryland still could not meet the minimum threshold to, to cover expenses, especially the two family, two, two children households. So we would expect in states with significantly less uh, minimum wage levels that those impacts would be even greater. 
and that the variance among what the family's uh, basic survival expenses versus income would be even more significant, which would make the benefits cliff even more uh, impactful in those households. Well, Madam Chairwoman, I just want to thank you for this important hearing. Here in New Hampshire, I can tell you that the people who have lost their jobs during COVID or trying to make their way back into the workplace, this benefit cliff really has a devastating impact. And we want our children to grow up strong and healthy and to be learning and working hard in school and to be wonderful employees in the future to continue uh, the comeback in our economy. So thank you. I appreciate this and I yield back. Thank you so much, Representative Custer. I now recognize the gentleman from Indiana, Mr. Baird, Representative Baird, if you're ready, you can unmute and begin your questions. Thank you, Madam Chair and uh, Ranking Member uh, for holding this um, hearing today. And I really appreciate all the witnesses' testimony and their background and experience. Uh, you know, I, I think, uh, as Americans, we all want to help individuals, especially the elderly and the children and, um, and the disabled, make sure that they have access to, to <laughs> adequate food and nutritious food. Uh, and you know, um, we're talking about some 86 programs uh, that are administered by nine or so different agencies and the challenges of trying to meet all those requirements with that many different uh, agencies involved is significant and I can appreciate that. But I also wanna reiterate that in my district, uh, I see help wanted signs everywhere. And so I wanna know how we, as, uh, as a member of this subcommittee and this subcommittee and the witnesses uh, and their testimony, how we do a better job of trying to bridge that gap uh, for those individuals and make sure that we get our economy started back operating and that takes employees. And so uh, we want to write a, try to make sure that we encourage that kind of um, and stimulate that kind of incentive uh, for some of our constituents. So I guess I guess with that, uh, Mr. Randolph, I'm going to start with you. Back in March of 2020, we had over 125 billion that was allocated for nutrition related relief. Now that excluded, according to my data, uh, child nutrition programs like the schools and WIC, uh, but it did include the pandemic EBT. And there is an ongoing discussion about continued increase in benefits, including here today. Uh, so your testimony appears to add some caution against the outright increase in the benefits uh, for reasons that make sense, uh, particularly higher benefit amounts across any program will lead to more drastic penalties. So can you share with me what your recommendations are to how we counteract that? Absolutely. Um, so what I would, as far as the amount of the benefit, I, you know, I don't know exactly what the amount of the benefit should be. I think what the best way to approach is I would base it on the science clearly. Uh, and then also on the ability of people to economically, you know, with an economic budget to be able to put together um, the resources to acquire their nutritional needs. So, so I mean, this is seems this is the this is the way that uh, the SNAP program has done it historically, and I think it's been good. 
generally the way that they have come up with this with a thrifty uh, food plan. So, so, I mean, what I would do probably if I were in the administration is, you know, I would have two panels. I would have one that consisted mostly of nutritional scientists and have them tell me based on the most recent science, uh, what is the, you know, how can people meet their nutritional needs? And then I would have a second panel made up of maybe, maybe have a social worker, have a number of individuals who lived on food stamps and actually have them, uh, you know, come up with a plan of how to obtain those nutritional values. And, and the department uh, provides guidelines. So, so, so uh, the Department of Agriculture releases guidelines to help people to figure out how to live, uh, you know, within the, the amount of the food stamps that they receive. So, so, so that's the one side of it. The other side of it is when, when we're talking about cliffs, and I can demonstrate this, I can, I can even do it in a diagram on my screen, but the, the, higher, the, the higher you have the starting value, the more difficult it is to, to solve the cliff. And we just got to keep in mind, uh, you know, the SNAP benefit cliff is just one piece of the bigger puzzle. So, so we have the SNAP thing, but then we have like uh, earned income tax credit, we have, we have child care services, we have uh, Medicaid. So there's a lot of other kind of programs that are out there. So, so, so I think as a general rule, you, you know, each of the programs want to kind of provide, you know, what is sufficient but not, not much beyond that, because if you, if you start building up higher starting values, you're going to make it much more difficult. I think the general goal is to solve, everybody seems to be in agreement, we want to solve the, the cliff problem. And now what I'm talking about is what do you have to do mathematically, you know, in, in a sustainable way to do that? Well, thank you, Mr. Randolph and I see I'm about out of time. And so I appreciate the other witnesses being here as well. So with that, Madam Chair, uh, I guess I'll let you yield back. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, I now, I think we're on to the gentleman from Florida, Mr. Lawson. Okay, thank you very much, Madam Chair, Chairman and uh, Ranking Member Bacon uh, for holding this hearing. Uh, this is a very important hearing. Uh, it's extremely important to me because uh, uh, I have uh, uh, both urban and rural communities uh, in my district, quite a few, that SNAP uh, benefits has been a major concern for them. Uh, and, and this is for all of the witnesses. Can you explain how categorical eligibility can support households uh, that are struggling to put food on the table? Uh, throughout the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, SNAP has been a lifeline for many Americans has ensured access uh, to uh, healthy food for many families. But I will go back to the first part of the question. Uh, again, following, can you explain how categorical eligibility can support households uh, that are struggling to put food on the table? You know, Representative Lawson, I'd, I'd like to take a stab and I also wanna to try to uh, conserve for others. Uh, you know, briefly, I would just say that absolutely categorical eligibility is going to give families more flexibility financially. Uh, frankly, the bandwidth issue where uh, if they're thinking hard about being on that margin of benefits or no benefits, there's more slack uh, in that overall income budget. So that's going to be hugely important uh, for families that are trying to work and make ends meet. And so that gives more space, uh, raising that income limit 
up to as much as 200% of the poverty line. I would just also add, however, that this is both a serious problem and on the arithmetic, a problem that does not affect uh, the typical SNAP family. So both can be true and you all are problem solvers. Uh, but you know, you got about 25% of these SNAP households that are somewhere between 100 and 130% of poverty. And then when you account for the states that are already doing broad-based categorical eligibility, that winnows the set of families for whom this is an issue down a bit more. So you got to solve it, but you also have to keep in mind, uh, you know, the, the program's doing a lot that works as it is. So you have to be careful in this conversation. Yes. Uh, anyone else would like to uh, say something in regard to this issue? Representative, if I may, um, just thinking about our senior population, uh, categorical eligibility allows us to remove the, the asset limit. And in Minnesota, before we implemented broad-based categorical eligibility, only 28% of our low-income seniors receive SNAP. And today, almost 60% of our low-income seniors receive SNAP. So there's a direct correlation with um, allowing people to have a little bit of um, savings, and it particularly also impacts our low-wage workers who maybe who are recently um, unemployed, and it allows them not to deplete their savings in order to receive SNAP benefits. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. And ju just to follow up, it, it, kind of a combination of both of those two, the, the two main benefits, one, the flexibility to the recipients to not be as pinpoint in terms of their benefits cliff. It gives them a little bit more range in terms of when their benefits fall off. It gives the state greater flexibility to increase from that 130% to the 200%. And it uh, gives flexibility in terms of the asset tests and savings accumulations to allow recipients to be able to weather some of those unexpected expenses. So those combinations that exist through the, the broad-based pro categorical program allows for greater flexibility, both from the recipient as well as the state's administration perspective on those. Okay, thank you. And I would like to try to get in another question before my time run out. Uh, and this is very important. I have a lot of students in the area. But the question is, is um, and this following is moving forward, how can Congress increase SNAP eligibility for college students, veterans, and individuals with disabilities? Anyone want to take a crack at it? I'll take a first, first crack at it. When we look at students, we've known traditionally students have had a difficult time in accessing SNAP, um, in part because of the, the struggle between um, uh, working and going to school. Um, we also know, I think, that uh, students have changed. There are less traditional students nowadays, and the program has not kept up to speed with um, thinking about students in different ways. And that is uh, an important piece that needs to be um, considered. Thank you. Okay, so as we mentioned earlier, uh, do y'all agree to the fact that we all have a White House conference on SNAP? I don't know if you're asking me, but I absolutely agree. Yeah, yeah okay. You know, uh, um, because I know uh, how people are struggling now. Ms. Brown, in your testimony, uh, you highlighted the importance of allowing recipients to earn up to 200% of the federal property guideline. Uh, in my home state of Florida, was to move to 200% requirement. What would you expect to see with this change? Uh, I have to, I'm sorry, Ms. Brown, I'm going to have to ask you if you would 
submit the answer to that question to the committee. The gentleman's time has expired. Are we have a question. We'll get we'll get it to you um, so that you can answer that. Um, but I support a White House conference on hunger. <laughs> uh, actually, uh, my colleague, Mr. McGovern, and I are calling for one so that we can bring all of these voices to the table, much like we're doing today, to really come up with long-term solutions to this problem. Um, thank you so much, uh, Representative Lawson. I now recognize um, the gentlelady from Louisiana, Representative Letlow, if, yes, I see you. Uh, if you would unmute and begin your questions. Thank you, Chairwoman Hayes. To all the witnesses, thank you for your time and participation in this hearing today. As I'm sure many of my colleagues can share similar experiences in their home states. When traveling throughout the 5th District of Louisiana, I come across numerous hiring signs and hear the concerns from small business owners of not being able to find enough individuals willing to go to work. These same small businesses are the backbone of our local economies, supplying essential goods and services to the surrounding communities and providing opportunities for gainful employment for the unemployed. As our nation continues to recover and makes promising strides in moving past the pandemic, we should be doing all we can to encourage and help families return to work. I think Mr. Randolph said it best as part of his written testimony. The more individuals re-engage in the workforce, the stronger and more productive the U.S. economy will become. In turn, we in Congress and on this subcommittee should look to provide the right balance of benefits, ensuring that federal programs aren't designed to disincentivize self-prosperity and preserve the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Plant Program for those truly in need. My question is for you, Mr. Randolph. Your testimony speaks to the Georgia Center for Opportunities Work with other nonprofit organizations to help people find well-paying jobs with the opportunity of career progression. Can you tell the committee more about this work, including the career ladders individuals embark upon and your organization's rate of success? Absolutely. And uh, just to mention the Pelican Institute in uh, in Louisiana is one of the organizations that we've been working with. And so you may be familiar with them. Um, I, what we do in generally is, is we actually have, um, we work with a array of other nonprofits, including Goodwill um, in Georgia. Uh, we actually have two programs, one based out of Gwinnett County, Georgia, and another out of Columbus, uh, the city of Columbus, Georgia. And what we do is we, we, develop mentors and then we, we work with mentors. We, we have a, a, a platform on a website that people can go to. We work directly with employers and we attempt to, uh, it's actually a fantastic uh, program to look at. It would be a great one sometime in the future to get even uh, uh, you know, individually or as a group um, that we could show you the platform, but, but basically to help them find jobs uh, you know, it, it has an array of things like it will tell them such things as, you know, what kind of skills they need, et cetera, uh, to do it. But but basically, that's that's what it is. It, it, we've only been doing it for about two years, so we haven't had a whole lot of, uh, you know, data yet on the success. But but we're really encouraged about about where we've gone so far over this past two years. Awesome. Thank you. You know, as this subcommittee moves forward in examining the SNAP program, I think one of the areas we should review and address is providing opportunities for individuals to pursue independence through meaningful employment and training programs. Mr. Randolph, in relation to your work, can you further expand on what changing this policy would look like and how we can address improving access to these programs? Would you uh, state again exactly which program of access to that you referred to, I'm sorry. 
um, an example, examining the supplemental nutrition assistance program. Oh, you mean gaining additional access to the program? Correct. Uh, maybe by uh, broad-based eligibility. Is that kind of yes. what you're thinking in mind? Okay. I actually have a suggestion that I believe is a better solution than broad-based categorical eligibility. And that is uh, in our recommendations, we, we would, we're really promoting the idea of an integrated uh, eligibility system across all programs. Uh, Georgia has developed the Georgia Gateway, for example. And, and if states move in this direction, it really would make, I believe, obsolete the idea of broad-based eligibility. So I, I would encourage the, the subcommittee to, to consider that as another option to it. Um, and just one other thing I like to say, um, they're using the, the term that the way that they're using broad-based eligibility uh, appears to be different than what it was traditionally. And so I would like to find out more about the flexibility they built into the system. Originally, it was a system like, for example, if someone was on a TANF program, then they would, you know, they, we already vetted them for assets and income. And so they would automatically, you know, qualify for, for SNAP because there was no, there was no communications between the TANF program, and the SNAP program. So prior to integrated eligibility, it kind of made sense. But as you develop your systems, it really doesn't make as much sense. But it sounds like from the other testimonies that um, that they're doing something different with it. And I would like to actually learn a little bit more about it uh, so that in, and maybe in, analyze it a little bit more. Thank you so much, Mr. Randolph, for sharing. It's encouraging to hear the great work you are all doing to help individuals get on the path of financial stability and growth. I yield back my time. Thank you. Thank you, Representative Lutlow. Uh, I now, yes, recognize the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Rush. I want to thank you, Madam Chair, for this very outstanding and provocative and informative hearing. My question is directed to Ms. Brown. Ms. Brown, I'm working to reintroduce my bill to strengthen SNAP by increasing the daily allotment and allowing for hot uh, and prepared foods to be purchased as part of the program. In your opinion, would these changes be helpful? And what other policies would you suggest that I include to strengthen SNAP and to ensure food security for the most vulnerable among us? Thank you. I agree that um, adding some additional flexibilities for the purchasing of hot foods with SNAP would be greatly beneficial. We know that in Minnesota, our homeless population, 30% of which are working, I will note, um, often have difficulties in um, finding food that they can prepare in homeless shelters or in other situations. So having some flexibility with the types of hot foods that can be prepared will greatly uh, support that that population. Thank you. Dr. Hardy, uh, from your uh, testimony, I believe that you will agree that SNAP is extremely important for workers in low-wage jobs who often like, like benefits such as paid sick leave and like stable hours and are disproportionately people of color. Do you agree that SNAP work uh, requirements just lead to families that are going to bed hungry? Uh, can you 
expand upon how SNAP is a vital resource for uh, supporting working families and uh, the issue of, um, of work requirements in SNAP, how can the Congress really effectively, proactively uh, deal with this particular issue? Well, I appreciate the question. And what I would say is that uh, my view of, of the program design and the evidence is that uh, SNAP work requirements, uh, in my view, undermine uh, the, the functioning and the efficiency of the program. Uh, the program actually does ebb and flow with the business cycle. Uh, when we have high job loss, we see greater SNAP use. When the economy improves, we see SNAP use go down. And so this is a really nice feature of the program. Um, so I appreciate that question. I think work requirements and SNAP are the wrong way to go. Um, but I also wanna to speak to the economic situation we face. Um, my colleagues and I think a lot about this. Everyone on this committee is concerned about it. I think that's one uniform area of agreement. We see an adjustment occurring right now in the US labor market, uh, perhaps long overdue. Um, there were quite flat uh, and relatively low wages uh, for less educated workers, uh, workers uh, in certain retail and food services sectors. And so, you know, right now, even in my own conversations with business owners, uh, actually in Georgia, uh, many moons ago, I was a student at Morehouse College and I know business owners in Georgia. And, you know, many of them have said, you know, it was a challenging situation. Uh, and at the same time, um, it's a market. And so they've, they've adjusted, they've raised wages. Uh, they're looking at automation. Um, it's not to say that this is easy. We're coming out of a pandemic. We're going to be probably dropping some of these economic relief payments. Um, other things might persist. Uh, but I think the broad point is that we are in the middle of an adjustment. Anchor employers are going to begin showing up in larger numbers. Our four-year and two-year universities are going to have more students on the ground. Uh, that'll have a stimulative effect for the economy as well, uh, more foot traffic. And, and so I think that this is really a wait-and-see uh, situation. So absolutely, there are shortages. Uh, but we're also in a market, we're in an adjustment, and I think we're seeing adjustments that make quite a bit of sense. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Gurrier, uh, Congress is well on its way to approving what we call the child tax credit. It's SNAP and the child tax credit on a colliding course, or how can they being used uh, to uh, co cooperatively to increase in the total uh, well-being well of uh, our American uh, citizens who, who certainly will rely on both of these programs. Yeah, just to, to address briefly, because I, I know we're running out of time. A big part of our particular research talks about the coordination of, of benefits and resources, not just SNAP, but uh, complementary resources that also exist. Uh, I believe Mr. Randolph talked about uh, the gateway in Georgia, in Maryland, we have the two gen programs and all of these programs are designed to coordinate eligibility and benefits for, for the greater benefit of the recipient. So. Thank you, Madam Chair, are you back? Thank you so much, Congressman Rush. And now I will recognize the gentlelady from Florida, Representative Kamek, if you're on, can you unmute and begin your questions? 
Kat, are you on the, are you on those? Just waiting, I heard that she was on and her camera was just off. So Representative Kamek, if you are available to begin your questions. Okay, so with that, I will yield myself five minutes for my questions. Uh, we've heard a lot today in this hearing. Thank you so much to all of the witnesses on the panel for joining us. And it shows that flexibility is even more critical in the context of COVID. Um, I hope that as a Congress, we are not using traditional metrics or doing things the way we've always done them when we've seen how detrimental it has been for families and how life-sustaining emergency pandemic benefits have been for so many people. I think we have a responsibility to legislate in the now, not in the same way that we've done for the last uh, 50 years. In the coming weeks, SNAP recipients are also preparing for another benefit clip, the COVID clip. At the end of September, recipients will potentially face an abrupt end to increased SNAP benefits provided by Congress in our emergency relief efforts. This is particularly concerning for low-income Americans who are among the hardest hit by COVID-19 and are still struggling to find high-wage employment and shield their families from food insecurity. We hear, we've heard a lot about uh, help wanted signs and jobs that have openings, but in many states, the minimum wage is less than $10. And these are low income entry level service jobs. Many people, many of those people who were not even eligible for unemployment benefits. So there is no money grab here. There, it is not a situation where people are choosing not to work um, uh, to benefit themselves. My question is for Ms. Brown. In Minnesota, you and Governor Waltz have worked closely with USDA to ensure this important pan pandemic relief does not end for recipients before they are able to get back on their feet. Can you tell me more about why emergency allotments and the 15% increase to SNAP have been and continue to be so critical for people in Minnesota? And what are your concerns as we face a sudden end um, in September? And I will just add before you, I turn it over to you, that um, on this committee, we've been working on legislation that will support uh, caregivers and foster parents uh, so that children, it's the, the Care for Kids Act that my, the ranking member uh, co-sponsored with me to make sure that um, families who are caring for children that are not their own will have automatic uh, redetermination eligibility and that's not, and, and kids will eat in school. Um, that's deeply personal for me because hungry kids do not learn. Um, so I was happy that uh, the ranking member joined me in this legislation and we are working to make sure that we are identifying gaps and working to close them. So can you just tell us about how the 15% increase has helped um, people in your state? Certainly, thank you very much and thank you for your comments. Um, in Minnesota, we have seen um, just a great relief with that, uh, with the pandemic supports that have been provided to our citizens. Um, certainly, um, it required a lot of information. It is a little bit confusing when there are multiple programs coming out, but the majority of our recipients have been so grateful. With the pandemic, with the uncertainty that has been um, put in place with people, with the additional um, food needs that people have needed to do with regards to their children not being in daycare, in school, with um, work being closed, just a lot of um, instability uh, has occurred. And so these benefits have been 
extremely critical and we hear every day how grateful people are to be receiving them. I'm sure you're on mute. Sorry about that, yes. Uh, my question, my next question, uh, thank you for that, Ms. Brown. Dr. Randolph, you mentioned in your testimony that you believe SNAP deductions for housing and childcare should be eliminated and that those needs should be addressed by programs specifically designed for assistance in those areas. I'm troubled by this recommendation because as you know, unlike SNAP, many other federal safety net programs are not guaranteed to low-income families and are notoriously difficult to access. The devastating years-long waiting list for housing assistance across the country are well known. Uh, last week, Miami-Dade announced that they had 5,000 available spaces for housing and 90,000 applicants. Many localities have long waiting lists that have grown longer through this pandemic. Why would you recommend that we expand or guarantee access to federal housing and other safety net programs? No, I'm sorry, would you recommend that we expand or guarantee federal housing and other safety net programs to low income Americans in need of assistance? Yeah, uh, thanks for, for your question. And I'm not a doctor, so I just want to clarify that so people don't think I have a PhD. I do not have one. But um, so uh, my point is that when, when we're looking at, we, we have a, we actually have a proposal out there for how to how to uh, more or less transform the welfare system so it becomes more rational. And, and I think one of the principles that you want to adhere to is you, you want it to kind of keep it you know, simpler as opposed to more complex. So in a way, the SNAP program actually can subsidize other needs by having sort of income disregards. So, so, so the, the idea is that as we kind of go down this path of trying to, trying to make it a more rational system, we should, we should in fact, you know, have, have the, let's just have the SNAP program fund the needs of nutrition. And, and then on top of that, I mean, I would uh, just, just with the uh, pandemic EBT program, for example, um, I think this is giving us an indication that we could actually probably consolidate other programs into SNAP because I now we're having some experience and I think that would be a step forward so that we could actually have a maybe a beefed up SNAP program, but by through col uh, consolidation, not necessarily by increasing the, the, the amount of money that's needed for that. And for the, you know, for the child care and the, and the housing, we actually have some proposals, uh, you know, on, on how to reconfigure it. I would not recommend expanding the Section 8 program as it is. I think there's a lot of problems with the Section 8 program. Uh, it's probably beyond the uh, the scope of this hearing, uh, and as well the childcare. There's there's certainly some issues for the childcare program as well. Thank you for those <laughs> remarks. I have so much to say, but my time has expired, and I <laughs> I yield back. I will recognize uh, the gentlelady from Florida. I think she's back, Representative Kamek. If you would like to ask your questions, please unmute and ask your questions now. Thank you, Madam Chairwoman. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your patience uh, and very good to see my colleagues. Um, it has been a while. I look forward to seeing you all next week. I uh, appreciate our witnesses and your testimony here today. I'm, I'm going to basically summarize my remarks quickly and jump right into questions. Um, 
several of our small business owners across my district have come to me here recently with the same problem in the, in the last few months, labor. Positions remain unfilled, job, job openings remain open, and the shortage of labor continues on. Now, I hazard a guess to say that many others in this hearing today have heard similar concerns from their constituents. Now, we all know that changes made to SNAP amid the pandemic helped Americans through an unprecedented time and challenges in our country. However, I am very deeply concerned that unless a serious effort is made to return SNAP to its original intended purpose, we're moving into an era of lifelong dependence on federal programs where it is accepted and even encouraged and incentives to help people get back to work and on their feet are set aside. Now, in the spirit of moving our economy forward and helping Americans get out of dependence and back to work, I submitted an amendment earlier this year as part of the budget reconciliation that would appropriate $3 billion to SNAP employment and training rather than to continue the increases in benefits. Now, sadly, the amendment failed uh, to a wave of spirited no's from my colleagues in the majority. Now, I have heard it said by a number of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle that programs like SNAP are not a handout, they are hand up. And to that, I wholeheartedly agree. Prolonged welfare dependency is no way to rebuild an economy. If any fixes to SNAP should be made, they should be made in the spirit of helping Americans get back to work, accrue savings, and exit the program as productive, successful members of society. Now, um, Ms. Brown, I had a question for you here. And I wanna thank you for your testimony here today. I was looking on the screen in the grid of where you found where you're at. <laughs> you're up in the upper right-hand corner. So as I'm sure you're aware, and I know you've talked a little bit about this today, um, both through the state and this committee's own conversation, a gentleman in Minnesota was able to receive a more than nominal SNAP benefit for many months due to Minnesota's use of broad-based categorical, categorical eligibility. Now I say this not to garner personal tax on the man, but to further demonstrate how sometimes solutions cause more problems. In Minnesota, any and all households within 165% of poverty level are provided with a domestic violence brochure, regardless of what households the, that household circumstances are. And while we constantly hear of the necessity of services and supports that meet the household needs, we have a patchwork of 44 state policies that provide 44 different funded pieces of paper that never truly meet or really strive to understand that particular family's needs. So it appears that we may need an overhaul, at least across a handful of programs well beyond SNAP. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. Um, I would agree that um, the, the overwhelming paperwork can be difficult, right? With the um, multiple paper, you know, different paperworks that need to be turned in, different timing, that can be very burdensome, both for our uh, eligibility workers, for state offices, and also for, um, for participants themselves. Um, however, I stated before, um, only 1% of people were impacted in Minnesota by um, our asset test when we reviewed it in 2011, shortly after we implemented in, in 20, 
um, in 2010. I would also agree that um, additional improvements need to be made on a continuous base on a continuous um, basis, um, and some of those have have occurred with the um, inclusion of um, states to review lottery winnings, for example. Um, but I do believe that the overall impact of 35,000 Minnesotans being able to receive SNAP um, far outweighs uh, the one percent or less of individuals who. Um, who uh, perhaps are not being entirely truthful with all the information that they're sharing, um, but this is part of this. This is part of our program, and this is part of what we uh, need to do: is just continuously look at what we're doing and how to improve and how to move forward to better serve. Thank you. Well, and and Ms. Brown, I appreciate your response. Um, being in the position that you are, we mentioned, you know, multiple states have different programs. Is there a, uh, a conversation that you have with your colleagues in other states about best practices and models that we can apply and adopt practices? Absolutely, that is an ongoing conversation. And I do think after 10 years or 11 years of um, utilizing broad-based categorical eligibility, there is a time to look to say, can we make some uniformity across all of the states? We have a lot of evidence and a lot of information from all of the states who have implemented 40 states, I believe, across the nation that have taken this effort. Excellent, thank you. And I know with that, my time has expired. Madam Chairman, thank you so much for uh, your patience and graciously allowing me to uh, answer or ask my questions and submit a statement. Thank you. Thank you, we're happy to have you and all the other members who have joined. That actually concludes all of our member questions. I thank the panel so much for your time and your expertise in this area. Uh, before we adjourn, I invite the ranking member to share any closing statements he might have. Thank you, Madam Chair, and I do appreciate the panelists today. Uh, I thought it was very educational, and I also appreciate the great questions from our, our colleagues. What, what I think I heard today was three of the four panelists made a pretty clear case there is a cliff effect, and maybe a fourth said there was a little bit of it, but I think between at least three today made a pretty clear case. Also, our two panelists we had a month or two ago uh, that were uh, guests of the majority, I think made a strong case as well. So I think we were onto something and I appreciate that. Uh, I know we've had some discussions on broad-based categorical classification and I understand it could relieve some staff pressures, cut through some of the red tape, but yet in those not common incidences, but they're too common enough where someone has lots of assets to include a million dollars in assets. I think when it happens, it undercuts the public's confidence of the SNAP program. I think it uh, undermines the confidence that the, our constituents have when they see and hear when this happens. So there has to be some uh, controls put on that. Uh, increasing benefits or expanding eligibility in one program here does nothing to solve the more egregious cliff effects across housing, childcare, and cash assistance. So my point being is there's like 80 of these programs. So this is, I think, a start, but we're gonna have to have a, hopefully we can look at it in a more broad, a picture uh, in Congress itself. Uh, USDA takes a look at char characteristics of recipients. The recently released 2019 report, most recent data that we have, and it was done during an economic boom, showed that as it relates to earnings, 29% of total SNAP households had earnings in 2019. Uh, further analysis revealed that 54% of households with children had income from earnings, while 6% of SNAP households that included elderly 
individuals had, had income. About 71% though of households with adults ages 18 to 49 without disabilities and childless households, ABODs in other words, had no earned income. I make this point that there, there is work to be done to re-engage families in the workforce. I think those stats tell a compelling story. And while I'm on the topic, because we've been talking about minimum wage and other things, uh, data also shows that if someone is making $27 an hour, that these very disincentives that cause the cliff effect still rears its head. Uh, frankly, it means if you can navigate your way onto enough benefits, it doesn't matter whether or how much you work. Look at what has been going on in our unemployment uh, insurance system. You know, it exceeds earnings from work and now we're throwing in massive amounts of child allowance uh, to even non-workers. So there has to be some cutoffs here. Interestingly, there was some talk about the thrifty food plan today. I must share that I have heard alarming statements from folks across the spectrum related to the department's handling of this process from discrepancies and methodologies to outrageous measures of time and effort. I can only hope that these are simply inside the beltway rumors. However, if true, we could be staring at an unprecedented increase to SNAP benefits that far exceeds what was done in the midst of the pandemic. And I see that this is a presenting a dramatic and continuing impact on SNAP beneficiaries. Seems like an unruly partisan precedent to set. I'd be remiss finally to say I didn't, if I didn't mention the fact that we did not hear about any revenue neutral solutions today. We should have some opportunities to do that. Nor do we hear about how to better coordinate our 80 plus different programs. Uh, though I know this is our in our food jar here. Uh, I know in, in the end, Congress is gonna have to take a holistic look at this. So Madam Chair, I really appreciate you scheduling this today. And uh, with that, I yield back. Thank you, uh, Ranking Member Bacon. I also wanna thank my colleagues and our witnesses once again for your participation in today's hearing. Your input and expertise will help us in shaping our policy priorities and legislation that may be considered on this subcommittee. We have heard much we can learn from today. It's even clearer to me how critical SNAP is in helping low-income Americans to put food on the table and how important state options for flexibilities like broad-based categorical eligibility are to easing the benefit cliff participants will likewise face, will likely face. Today's witnesses reinforce what we have heard, or at least what I have heard in my communities and shed light on how the concerning upcoming COVID relief cliff may impact those who are still most in need of continued support as our nation works to recover from the dire economic straits of this pandemic. Congress offers government assistance to many sectors of our economy, farmers, the finance district, housing, manufacturers, small businesses, and we don't worry about the long-term impact of government welfare or programs that support our economy. I would just like to see us prioritize the same level of investment in hungry people. SNAP is the most efficient federal program for boosting local economies. I wanna thank each of our witnesses again and to all the members who joined, your time and knowledge are extremely valuable. And I look forward to all we will be able to continue to achieve together in the 117th Congress. I also wanna note, it is not lost on me that when I took over as the chairwoman of this subcommittee and even at the end of the 116th Congress, every member of Congress, Republicans and Democrats alike, 
were heartbroken and appalled by the long lines that we saw on highways at food banks, people who had lost their jobs and for the first time in their lives were facing food insecurity. I hope we don't forget those images and move forward in a way that does not acknowledge that we have a problem with hunger in this country. So to return to business as usual and the status quo is not what I'm going to do on my watch. We have work to be done. We have a responsibility to make sure that in the United States of America in 2021, we don't have long lines that are miles long at food banks or families that are worried about not being able to feed their children. So again, I thank you all for your work today. And with that, this hearing is adjourned.